we get to turn to God's word uh, today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please open to Acts chapter 17. Uh, that's where we are in our series, The Rise of the Christian Church. Um, and also in your bulletin, there is a little handout that I hope uh, is helpful for you as we go through the service to kind of uh, take some notes if you like, or at least to uh, be able to pace your energy to see where the pastor is in the process of the sermon. Uh, and at the top of that handout, there uh, is a little quiz this morning, a little pop quiz for you, uh, or we'll call it a little personal assessment. It's a little gentler. So for just four questions here I want, I want to uh, start off with before we get into the passage. First question is this, from a scale of one to five, one being low, five being high, how confident are you? that the Christian faith is true? How confident are you that the Christian faith is true? Second question, true or false? Sometimes I find the teachings of Christianity to be awkward or difficult to believe. Okay, question three, same thing, scale to one to five, one low, five high. How reasonable does the Christian faith seem to me? That is, how much based upon reason does it seem? And then the last one, which might take you a little more time or thinking or at least time to write, uh, short answer here is this. For you personally, what is the most persuasive argument for the believability of the Christian faith? For you personally, what's the most believable argument, or most convincing argument for the believability of the Christian faith? So as you kind of look at your answers, or at least think about what that was like for you uh, in your heart and in your mind, uh, if you answered some of those questions with a degree of uncertainty or a degree of doubt, then I really hope this morning's message would be a great encouragement to you. Uh, I, I think it's, it's natural for Christians, either people coming to faith or people who have even been Christians for a while, to have struggles, to have doubts, to have questions. And that is a fair and a fine thing to bring together in the family of God. But I think the scripture addresses those things. And our passage this morning, I think, does as well. Uh, today we're going to see the reason for the faith. That Christianity is not just a matter of, of blind faith. Check your brains at the door. Or just a subjective feeling. Or just kind of a sentimental bit of religious comfort to help you navigate life, but nothing of real transcendent importance. Uh, the Christian faith in our particular cultural moment is definitely... Um, it's definitely countercultural, right? Uh, increasingly so, as our, as our culture is becoming, especially in the U.S., is becoming increasingly secularized. And so I think we definitely get a lot of smoke, a lot of pushback from the culture, uh, critical of Christians, critical of the faith, even at times calling us dumb or foolish to believe some of these things. And I want to tell you, it, we don't need to feel vulnerable to that at all. Christianity has the goods of an historically uh, intellectual and sound faith that makes sense of the world that we live in. 
We have pride of place in the resources and the documentation and the evidence of that which we believe. We have a very uh, a firm foundation and pride of place in what the Christian faith is all about. Um, there are even some secular uh, intellectuals. They're not yet Christians, although I'm watching to see the day. I'm going to pick up on a couple of them. One is Jordan Peterson, who, as a psychologist, looks at the Christian faith and says it actually has a lot to offer and a lot to commend itself just from one, from, for a person's experience in life. Okay? Or let's take another uh, fella. This guy's name is Tom Holland. And this is not the Tom Holland from Spider-Man. I saw first service, a bunch of teenage girls' eyes lit up and were suddenly really attentive to the sermon. <laughs> not that Tom Holland. But um, he is an author of a book called Dominion. And one of the things he chronicles in his book is uh, the impact of Christianity, its positive impact throughout the history of civilization. And it's really a fast... He's not, he's not yet a believer either. Again, I'm watching. Um, so there, what I want to say is that there are, um, there are those even outside of the faith who look at the Christian faith and realize there's quite a lot of good here to commend this thing. And, uh, and I think that's something we want to remember as we act as gospel witnesses and witnesses for Christ in our world is to make sure that we're talking about the truth but that we understand the truth of the gospel is not just this inconvenient, hard truth, but that it's also genuinely good for people and for civilization and truly beautiful. The true, the good, and the beautiful. And I think that's important for us to keep in view as we act as gospel witnesses. And I ran across a good example of somebody doing that very thing this week, and it's Sam Alberry, one of our Christian Thought Forum speakers, our apologetic speakers, and he has just this little one-minute video where he contrasts the atheistic worldview with the Christian worldview and shows how one offers uh, something so much more. And so, Andrew, if you would play that, or Doug, are you playing it for me? All right, buddy, thank you. I think there are many things that an atheistic worldview doesn't properly account for. I think actually the most compelling argument for Christianity is, it, is its explanatory power. It just makes sense of so much in life. But in particular, I think an atheistic framework doesn't really account for love. Uh, it may say that love is a sort of evolutionary prerequisite. It's something that we kind of have built into ourselves in order to kind of progress in our evolutionary trajectory or whatever it might be. But I don't think we really believe that. Uh, and so much of love actually is not just about self-preservation and all the rest of it. it, it's precisely the opposite. It's caring for those who are weak. It's looking after those who actually aren't of use to us. That is very hard to account for from an atheistic framework, but makes complete sense if we're created by a God who is love. Anyways, what I want to highlight there, I hope you see that, is, you know, sometimes as Christians, we feel like we have the burden of proof to explain everything or a lot of things that might even be difficult, say, about a triune God and the existence of hell, the incarnation, and these various things. And some of those things are challenging for the mind. But those who believe other things have much to explain as well. If you have an atheistic worldview, how do you account for love? The Christianity really, Christianity really has pride of place in its overall worldview. So let's transition here. Let's talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul as we kind of lead into our passage. He, of course, is one of the most significant figures in the rise of the Christian church. 
his conversion from zealous Judaism to Christianity completely alters the course of his life and really of the church as he helps to lay the foundation of the church with the other apostles. And Paul, of course, was one who went from persecuting Christianity to essentially becoming its chief apologist and the one explaining it to, to the world, especially to the Gentiles. Uh, and, and ultimately, the Apostle Paul even gives his life as a martyr for this. So this is quite a, quite a compelling witness. Uh, and as a witness for Christ, one of the tools that the Apostle Paul uses is apologetics. This is a primary tool of his. That is, Paul uses reason and arguments and evidence and proofs and dialogue and even persuasion to affirm the nature and the ministry of Christ to his audience. And as we actually track uh, his, Paul's ministry to various groups sort of in the first century world, what we find is that the gospel he preaches never changes. The gospel never changes. But as he conveys this message, he changes how, how it's communicated in order to fit his audience. And so kind of the tagline right at the front of your outline that I, I, I want you to hear this morning is this. Paul preaches the same gospel, but provides a different apologetic based upon his audience's need. So to the Jews, for example, Paul simply needs to prove, well, that Jesus, isn't a Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not an imposter. He is the long-promised Messiah who actually had to suffer and die and raised from the dead in order to accomplish the divine mission. To Gentiles, Paul has sort of a different purpose, a different kind of point to prove to them. If they're starting from an atheistic perspective, or many times a polytheistic perspective, or maybe spiritual but you know, not religious, he, he's going to preach the same gospel, but he's got to show how the gospel speaks to their uh, preconditions here. And this is what I mean when I refer to contextualizing the gospel. The gospel doesn't change, but we provide an appropriate apologetic to our audience. And Acts 17 is really an excellent chapter of scripture to show how this is done. Because we find, some, we find two different sort of people groups or two different worldviews on display here. And I think this is a really important skill that present day Christians need to learn which is we need to learn to read our audience well, to understand and appreciate their spiritual uh, position and sort of what that gap is between their present belief and gospel belief. Learning to read our, our audience well, and that's exactly what the apostle does very well here throughout um, Acts 16. Uh, so again, the gospel does not change but our apologetic, how we present it, and what needs we address may. So let's look at Acts 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, 
as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So the first thing I want to point out here is this. The gospel is reasonable. It's reasonable. Notice the actions of the Apostle Paul as he interacts with his audience here. He is reasoning with them, explaining, and proving. Sometimes I think, you know, we... Throughout the book of Acts, we definitely see that God is sovereign over salvation. And we believe that. We know that it is his work to change a person's heart. Even last week, we saw Lydia, right? It said God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So we know that God does that. Sometimes we can throw up our hands and then say, well, it's all God's to do and we're sort of, you know, not a part of it at all. No, look what Paul gives himself to. Reasoning, explaining, and proving. And I think that should be an encouragement to us that Christianity is not just a matter of, of blind faith or subjective feeling or just some pragmatic benefit of a fictional story. It is something that is true. It is true for all people. It's public truth, and it's reasonable. It's something that we can show and defend. And I also think it's interesting, especially as we look at the whole of Acts 17, Paul's message isn't just boilerplate. It's not just canned and prepared. He's very strategic to his particular audience. And in this case, he is speaking to a Jewish audience in the synagogue primarily. Um, Those of you who have maybe traveled in the UK uh, and traveled on the underground uh, tube system or whatever, it's kind of a fun experience. I've gotten a chance to do that a couple times. I love some of the, um, I don't know, the little communication tools they have under there. The one that came to mind this week was the phrase, mind the gap. You know that one? Mind the gap. And of course, what they mean by that is, you know, between the the platform and and the uh, train that you're stepping into, there's a gap, and it's basically watch your step, right? Mind the gap. I want to borrow that phrase and put it in your head this morning. Mind the gap. That is, as you have gospel conversations with people, Be good at assessing what is the gap between their spiritual position and their present belief and their unbelief. What's the gap? What's the obstacle? And we want to tailor our apologetic uh, towards this. So in this particular instance, Paul knows his audience well. And he knows the gap of their belief very well because he himself is a Jew. In fact, he calls himself elsewhere a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so he understands the gap for uh, many ardent Jews who would be gathered together for worship in the synagogue here, and that is this, it's a misperception of Messiah. That's the gap, that's the common gap. Um, Jesus, certainly claiming to be God's Messiah, didn't fit the preconception that Israel had for Messiah when he would arrive. The expectation for Messiah was that he would be immediately sort of this geopolitical leader, that he would be a powerful champion who would immediately deliver Israel from Roman oppression, uh, one who would sort of reestablish Israel as an independent Hebrew uh, nation and rule it with power, or to put a funny spin on it, make Israel great again. I think that's funny, but people don't laugh about that nearly as much as I think they ought to. You see a little blue hat with MEGA written on it? Now you're getting it? That's my kind of humor. It doesn't always help me out. I think that's funny. 
But that's their expectation. We want a geopolitical uh, ruler who's going to you know, kick Rome out and establish a kind of prominence for us here. And that's, that's what they're looking for. In fact, that expectation continues even with the disciples, even after the resurrection of Jesus, right? Beginning of Acts, chapter 1. Lord, is it at this time you're going to establish your kingdom? And he has to say, guys, you still don't have it. This isn't the time, and it's not for you to know the times. So the gap for Paul's audience here uh, is that they're expecting a powerful Messiah, and instead Jesus is nothing like. Jesus comes in humility. He comes in service. He allows himself to be turned over to the authorities. He suffers. He's killed. He's buried. He is the complete opposite of what they were expecting. So the gap that Paul has to deal with with the Jewish audience is is to show them that Jesus, in fact, had to suffer, had to be killed, and had to rise. That is the apologetic he provides. That is also what we call the kerygma, or that's Greek for the preaching often of the early apostles as they're speaking to uh, the Jewish uh, folks who did not yet believe. In fact, we see that same message essentially from Peter and Stephen and Philip in the early parts of Acts, proving that the Messiah had to suffer and die and raise. And so the point that I just want to draw out here, first of all, is that the gospel is something that can be reasoned for, explained and proved, especially from the scriptures themselves. There is external evidence for the truthfulness of the gospel, but certainly internal evidence from within the scriptures, uh, and that's what Paul puts on display for us here. Mind the gap. All right? The gospel doesn't change, but the apologetic we provide may. Secondly here, we see that the gospel is disruptive. Verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. I think this point that the gospel is disruptive is something that especially Christians in the United States need to come to grips with right now. This is something that we need to especially, I think, be paying attention to because our cultural moment is changing, right? The weather is changing all around us quickly. Um, let me say it this way. The United States, uh, for a long time, has uh, Christianity within the U.S. has enjoyed sort of a pride of place. It has uh, enjoyed prominence and safety and even honor such that some people will even assert that the United States was founded to be a Christian nation, Now, I want you to know that I actually take issue with that, and that's not my point this morning. That's just by way of letting you know where I'm coming from. I'm not going to argue for it. Uh, I do think that's an over-interpretation of the framers' intent. But if either from intent or or just popularity, 
we would say that Christianity has been the predominant religion and practice within the U.S. I think we can agree there. And what we have to all recognize right now is for the last several decades, Christianity has been in steady decline. Such that to the extent that the U.S. has ever been a Christian nation, under either definition, we would have to say that at this present moment, this is a post-Christian nation. That's just reality right now. That's just where we are. Um, and it's not that uh, Christianity has been replaced by another religion, right? But what we see is the rise of secularism, of no, belief, no religious belief, no religious affiliation. Which means that as we proclaim the gospel, as, as Christians in the U.S. proclaim the gospel now as public truth, it is going to be increasingly divisive, increasingly disruptive. And I know many of you already feel that, right? You feel it at where you work, you feel it in your neighborhood, whomever you speak with. It is going to become increasingly disruptive. Now, I would say that the gospel has always been disruptive personally, right, in somebody's life. Um, I love how the author, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, um, in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, it's in your notes. She's a fascinating woman. She was a tenured feminist professor at Syracuse University and a practicing lesbian doing research on the religious right who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And her life was completely turned around. But she describes that turnaround as the train wreck of her discipleship. It just, the cars just piled up and her life was completely reordered. The gospel has always been disruptive, especially for, personally for those who turn in saving faith to Jesus. But we are finding now that the gospel is disruptive culturally. As we claim it as, as public truth, I think we're going to get increasing resistance. from, And I want to talk about sort of three ways to, to view Christianity in our culture, and I'm going to commend one of them to you. But I think this is a helpful lens to kind of consider what's going on a little bit. First of all, we can think about Christianity, uh, Christianity against culture. This is where somebody's going to say... Um, the world and it's, it's, it's unbelieving and its practices and all that it does is sort of evil and we as Christians need to stay away from it and sort of separate from it. And sort of there's this us versus them mentality, okay? So I'll, that's a slim definition, but I'll give you that for starters. The second perspective would be this, a Christianity of culture. And this is where the church simply accommodates to culture. It just says, well, we have these Christian beliefs, and, you know, I guess some of them are hard. Uh, you know, hell, not a popular doctrine. Well, let's just shave that off of our belief system or the sexual ethic of Christianity. Nobody really likes that, so well, let's just cut that off as well. And it just accommodates Christianity to simply reflect the world. And to be honest with you, that's a lot of what's happening in the mainline churches right now. So that when people go in there, they go, this is no kind of church. It says nothing different than the world says, why would I even come? And they don't, which is why that, that, those particular denominations are in free fall, I would say. So that's Christianity of culture. The third one is the one I would commend to you, which is this. Christianity in and for culture. In and for it. Without accommodating to it. But in and for it sounds like this. We're in this world and we are to love our neighbor. 
We're to love them with Christ's love. We're to love them because God loves them. And because we love them, we want what's good for them. We want their flourishing. And the best thing we can do for their flourishing is to give them the life-ordering truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they can experience that restoration as well, both now and eternally. That is being in and for the culture. And I think that's where we need to be. That's what we need to retrieve. And I think we are, unfortunately, as Christians in this particular moment, going to have to be, if we're going to have that, occupy that position of in and for the culture, we're going to have to be increasingly aware of the scriptures like these, which show us the disruptive nature of the gospel in the culture. In other words, the easy days are over, if they ever were. I think it's going to get harder. But as we look at the church and the apostles in the first century world, they did not retreat from the culture. They stayed in it and preached to it and gave their lives for the gospel such that people would come to faith in Christ. I think this is also what Jesus sort of prepares us for when he says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Those are tough words, and we might hear that and go, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that the church is to be propelled by military force? Does he mean he wants to destroy people? What's this about? Jesus is teaching this same principle that I'm after here, which is that the gospel is disruptive. It's even divisive. As you look at the text where he says that, it even shows that it will divide up families of people who are for the gospel and those who are against it has, a, it has a way of dividing up where people truly are, and that's the nature of things. So again, the book of Acts consistently shows us that the church is on mission in the culture for its good without accommodating to it and was even willing to suffer for it. And I think this is going to be incredibly important for Christians to see this and to know this. I think that's what's ahead of us here. Let me give you a, um, another picture of this. I'll show it to you anecdotally. Um, when I was a kid, so I'll prepare yourself for kind of a, um, I'm feeling old rant. Okay. One of those. Here we go. When I was a kid at first Baptist church of Apple Valley, uh, one of the things everybody did honestly in town, it felt like all over town after church, everybody went out to eat. We went, that was the thing you did. You went to church and then you went out for lunch. That's, that was my childhood, 10 year old Eric. And um, my friends, the Pettises, uh, who went to our church, um, they would go to Sizzler afterwards. And, I, and Sizzler had this particular special. This is also a little bit of an aging thing. Some of you will remember this, though. They had a special. It was steak and all-you-could-eat shrimp for $8.99. Can you imagine what that would be today? It'd be 50 bucks, wouldn't it? Steak and all-you-could-eat shrimp, and I could eat a lot of shrimp. So uh, on Sunday mornings, I'd try to find where the pedestals were sitting, and I'd go sit with them, because if they were going to dinner afterwards, they'd be like, Eric, come on with us. Okay, <laughs> off we go. And, um, and it's funny, the other thing they would do, they'd leave about 10 minutes uh, early so that we could get there and beat the Methodists to the restaurant, because <laughs> we got out at the same time. But, but just, I just kind of flash back that I'm thinking, that's the way it was. After church, you went, you went to lunch somewhere in town, and you'd look at the restaurant, and everybody had on their Sunday best, and they had all obviously just come from church. 
That is not the moment we live in, is it? I mean, if you go out to eat somewhere now, and a family or a couple or somebody bows and prays over their meal, you're going to be like, whoa, there's another Christian in the room. I mean, it might be a blessing to you because it's so conspicuous. That's, just, that's what's happened in my lifetime, is what I mean to say. And just the last 30 years, from that being a normal cultural expression to being a conspicuous cultural expression. Things are changing. The good news, however, is that the gospel bears up under the scrutiny even of these cultural winds. And that's our third point here. Because the gospel is rooted in historical reality. And what I mean by that is the gospel is not a myth. It's not just a convenient fictional story told for our existential improvement or something like this. The person of Jesus is a real historical person. The teachings of Jesus have been recorded and preserved and disseminated for two millennium. The apostles were real people who witnessed his life, his death, and his resurrection and promoted his gospel message and ultimately gave their lives for it. The prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, a Savior sent by God to rescue sinners, was recorded and preserved hundreds of years prior to its event, and it was fulfilled in Christ. The person of Jesus was really killed, really buried, and really raised from the dead and has hundreds of witnesses testifying to it, again, many of which died as martyrs for this belief. And this is recorded for us throughout human history. The gospel is rooted in historical reality. It can be researched, tested, and verified. In fact, it's fascinating to me that many who set out to disprove the gospel actually because of all the mountain of evidence, turned out to become Christians. Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Alistair McGrath, C.S. Lewis, and Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and many more. And so what I want to encourage you with is that the Christian faith does not shy away from investigation. If you're a skeptic, and you're here this morning to see what the church is all about, I encourage you, explore and investigate. The Bible has nothing to hide. The gospel has nothing to hide. I love the psalm that says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. It's like the psalmist kind of saying, I dare you. Come on in. Try it out. So this is our fourth point here. The gospel invites investigation. Look with me at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Uh, On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, and uh, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, 
and he left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay, first of all, when we talk about the Bereans, uh, they're this, this great group in the scriptures, and they have this great reputation, and especially within Christendom, it's funny, we have Berean book houses and Berean coffee houses and Berean Bible studies because they are those who examined the scriptures, and we love them for that. Uh, and, and that's all true and well and good. Um, but I think sometimes the perspective that we have is that, you know, that these are people in church with their Bibles open, kind of making sure that the pastor's on point and not playing fast and loose with the text, right? Some truth to this. However, it's, it's I think, right to remember that the Bereans are not yet believers, or they're not yet Christians. They're God-fearing, they're at the synagogue, but they have not yet embraced Jesus as Messiah. They're pre-Christians, if you will. Uh, And yet, according to Paul's custom, he begins his gospel proclamation in the synagogue where where he finds them and he shows them from the scriptures that Christianity is true, that Messiah had to suffer. And so again, he... Paul does a good job at knowing and discerning the gap there and preaching to its need. He can show them from the scriptures that Messiah was prophesied to be a suffering servant. Even look at, say, Isaiah 53. And I think, again, as Christians, we need to borrow from, from Paul's example here, which is, is the starting point for our gospel conversations is to assess and understand one's spiritual status and what the gap is from their present belief to gospel belief, and provide an apologetic that speaks to that. In this instance, for, for Paul, it's, it's a small gap, right? It's about Messiah had to suffer. But in our day and age, don't you feel like that gap is broader? We're not talking to an audience who knows the scripture. We're not talking to an audience who believes that they're an authority in their life. Uh, and there are so many other questions. I think if you consider sort of the gap uh, in our day and age, we would have to deal with other things like scientism, the belief that science is the only way that we might know what truth is. Or we might have to deal with a credibility problem, right? If Jesus is true and you're Christians, why do we have so many Christian jerks out there? Or the problem of evil, which has been a, you know, prevailing problem for people, or this confrontational sexual ethic, especially in our day and age, right, that the teaching of Christianity is quite uh, offensive to them and an affront to them. In fact, teaching of Christianity really is an affront to what our culture, I think, holds up as God, and that is the sovereign self. That's the issue of our day. So I think you and I could sit here and go, man, this gap is wider. We're not just trying to show that Jesus was the Messiah that was expected and had to suffer, we're dealing with this gap. And so you might ask the question, how do we deal with a gap this large? What is the apologetic that helps us with the irreligious not looking for a savior? Right? Good question? Okay, that's next week's sermon. So you get to come back for that one. I hope I can deliver on that question. So with that, let me pray for us. And, um, and then we're going to turn our our hearts to uh, one of our uh, ministry teams that's getting ready to head out to the Dominican Republic. So let me pray for this first. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel, for its truth, for its goodness, for its beauty.
It is true because it has emanated in you. You have provided your son who would die for our sins. Kill them at the cross. Raise from the dead. Make us victorious. Lord, it is good because it restores us to a holy God. It saves us from the wrath that is to come. And Lord, it is beautiful because it reorients us into what it really means to be human, which is the good thing you made us to be human. So thank you for this way by which you're restoring us, and I pray that we, Lord, would be faithful gospel witnesses for you, that we would learn to uh, mind the gap of those that you've put in our lives, to be missionaries where you've placed us, and to provide the right apologetic for the gap that people have. Lord, lead us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.